Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. A quick note before today's guest, I went on Joe Rogan's podcast recently, and we talked about all kinds of topics, including New York City's migrant crisis, COVID, RFK Jr., the Israel-Hamas war, mind-reading tech, ancient Egypt, consciousness, embryo selection, and CRISPR, and much more. So go check that out if you haven't already. Okay, so I've gotten criticism lately that I've created an echo chamber of pro-Israel guests, Benny Morris and Andrew Gold being the two examples. So I went on Twitter and asked who I should get to deliver the Palestinian perspective. And many, many people suggested my guest today, who is Youssef Munayr. Youssef is a Palestinian-American writer and political analyst based in Washington, D.C. He was the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, and previously he directed the Jerusalem Fund for Education and Community Development. As you'll hear, this whole conversation was pretty contentious. It seemed like we disagreed about almost everything, but Youssef was a very respectful conversation partner, and those are the kinds of guests that I look for. Before you listen to this episode, I would encourage you to go back to my episode with the Israeli historian Benny Morris, if you haven't already listened to it. It's called The History and Ethics of the Israel-Palestine Conflict. I recommend that because at the beginning of this podcast, Yusuf wanted to dive deep into the history of the conflict, and our debate there won't make much sense to you if you aren't already familiar with the basics. So with that said, please do enjoy my conversation with Yusuf Munayr. Yusuf Munayr, great to be with you. Thanks for coming on my show. Sure. Thanks for having me. So uh, I went out on Twitter a few days ago and asked who I should get that would have a pro-Palestinian perspective on the the current conflict. And I think your name came up the most or, or tied for the most. And from some people I really respect, like Shadi Hamid, who, who I've had on this show before. And so I uh, am glad you're coming on. And I talked about the conflict so far, and I have uh, a, a fairly pro-Israel take on the issue, but I never want to create an echo chamber for myself or for my audience. So that's why I went out and got you. So thanks so much for giving the time. Well, I appreciate you reaching out and happy to talk about this. So before we get into it, can you give a little bit of your background? How did you um, come to care about this and, and learn about this conflict and a little bit of your biography, if you don't mind? Yeah, I mean, uh, it really goes back to the very beginning for me. I'm uh, a Palestinian citizen of, of Israel. I was born uh, in a town uh, called Elid, which is today inside Israel. The vast majority of the native inhabitants of that town were ethnically cleansed in 1948. And a small portion uh, survived that ethnic cleansing. Those included my grandparents. And so I was born there, but uh, grew up largely here in the uh, United States. Ended up uh, studying political science and obviously maintained um, 
a deep connection to this issue in personal and professional ways. And I've worked on uh, matters of U.S. policy towards Israel and Palestine for uh, well over 20 years now. Uh, and that's what I do now. Okay. So what is your vantage point on, on this conflict right now? I mean, how do you view Hamas's attack on Israel? How do you view Israel's response? Can you give me a big picture of what you were thinking and feeling when you uh, scanned the news in the past two weeks? Well, you know, I don't, uh, as, first of all, as someone who uh, has been following this for a very long time, I certainly don't see this as uh, an isolated event, but part of a long running series of events that are all interrelated and go back to the core of this issue, which is the denial of, of freedom and self-determination to Palestinians in their homeland. And this, of course, uh, has roots back to 1948. And we have seen many different implications of that moment over time, which have been horrifically uh, violent, including what we are seeing today, which uh, I believe amounts to massive war crimes being committed now in Gaza uh, against the Palestinian people there. So let's, uh, I guess let's start there with war crimes. You know, obviously targeting a, a military target and that is in the same location as civilians is not by definition a war crime if you're insofar as you're actually going for a legitimate target so which what kind what do you have in mind when you say israel is is uh, committing war crimes there is a, a long long history of them that again doesn't start with Gaza. And there's been voluminous documentation of this uh, from every respectable human rights uh, organization that exists. And this uh, includes policies, of course, not just in the Gaza Strip and not just during the bombardment of targets, but in a wide range of policies that violate the Fourth Geneva Conventions in Gaza, in the West Bank, uh, and elsewhere uh, as well. So, you know, I uh, would encourage your listeners uh, and viewers uh, to read up on those. I don't think we have time to discuss them all. But again, voluminously documented by the United Nations, by groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations alike, who've been screaming not just about war crime upon war crime being committed, uh, but also about the failure uh, to hold Israel to account for these war crimes. And I think this piece of it is so important in terms of contextualizing the moment that we're in today. And I want to be clear that the targeting of civilians is a war crime regardless to who perpetrates it. And I think we should be unequivocal about that. The situation we find ourselves in, though, is, is a product of an environment in which war crimes by one side never leads to accountability. In fact, there is a climate of impunity which perpetuates these things. And there is a difference, a fine difference, but an important, crucial, and moral difference between justice and vengeance. And that difference is law. That, that is the fundamental difference between these two things. And when law is not enforced equally, it doesn't exist. It only becomes an instrument of oppression and not an instrument of justice. And so I think this is the fundamental issue here when we talk about violations of international law. Without accountability for them, they just feed a cycle of vengeance and violence that I think is on full display in recent days and weeks. Okay, so I want to give you a little bit of the flavor of how I look at this in a big picture and get your reaction. In my view, I feel that I very much support international laws which outlaw war crimes. And at the same time, I'm quite aware that 
every just war in history, including you know America in World War II or South Korea in the Korean War, every one of them involves uh, war crimes on both sides, even by the good guys. And so bracketing the question of war crimes, which is obviously worth, always worth a conversation, there's nevertheless a separate question of whether the two sides are morally equivalent. And the way I look at this is that when we think of World War II, for example, we don't tend to think of the civilian loss on each side necessarily, although we could. We tend to think of the goals of each side of the conflict. Hitler wanted to create a genocidal empire. America had relatively benign goals, right, which were proven by the fact that we won and didn't conquer Japan and didn't conquer Europe and so forth. So when I think of this conflict in terms of the goals of each side, I see one side, uh, Hamas, here in this case, Hamas Sorry, what are the two and, and sides the Israeli that you're government. Referring to? So I see that Hamas, Hamas's goal is to annihilate Israel. And Israel's goal is, uh, and by annihilate Israel, I mean annihilate not just the IDF, but you know every Jewish Israeli in historic Palestine, right? I don't see that as equivalent to Israel's goal. We know that if Israel wanted to, it has enough firepower to commit a genocide tomorrow successfully. And it doesn't do that because it's not like Hamas. Not to say there are zero elements in Israeli society that are that radical. There are. But the thrust of Israel's goal is far more benign than the thrust of Hamas's goal. And so I find I have to broadly side with Israel in the current conflict. Yeah, I mean, I think suffice it to say, I think that's incredibly misguided and mistaken. And I think, first of all, when we begin a conversation by saying, let's bracket war crimes and then have a conversation about morality, you lost me. You lost me at that point. This is uh, not about Israel and Hamas. This is about Israel's war against the Palestinian people, which predates Hamas, by the way, long predates Hamas. And there is no moral equivalence between a occupier and the people that it occupies, between uh, a party that is ethnically cleansing and the party that is being ethnically cleansed. And so it's convenient to start this at a particular date and time that allows us especially to flatten things to the level of good guys and bad guys. But I don't think that is a serious or nuanced understanding of what's happening here. Long before Hamas existed, there was an occupation. Long before the occupation, there was a massive ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians that have never been allowed to return to their homes. Where is the morality in that? Where? There is not. And so I get that there are simplified narratives out there. And when people see crisis and horror uh, and feel a sense of desperation, they, they cling to explanations that simplify things in this way. But this is terribly misleading. And I think it only contributes to a situation where these kinds of horrors end up getting repeated because we fail to grapple with the fundamental core issues that create the conditions in which political violence takes place. So I think we're doing a disservice, not just to Palestinians, by the way, uh, but to Israelis. At the end of the day, Israelis and Palestinians are stuck living with each other, whether they like it or not. And so the question is, how do we address the kind of conditions that continue bringing these repeated episodes of political violence. And we certainly don't do that by trying to flatten the situation into good and evil and ignoring the core issues, the core political grievances of people who've been denied their fundamental rights. Maybe it makes sense to go back in history and, and 
see how you and I may view things differently. Obviously, there is a way in which people can start the story at a, a convenient time on, on both sides. But obviously, the, the expulsion of Palestinians and the, the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem came in the context of a war after the partition, uh, the UN partition in 1947, a war of annihilation against the Jews of Israel, not a war that where the first attacks were launched by Jews. I don't want to keep interrupting you because I, I don't, I want to allow you to speak, but I disagree with your, your, your framing. And I'll just say that to not cut you off, I'll refrain from doing that, but just want to make clear to people who are, are listening that my silence doesn't necessarily mean I agree with what you're, you're saying. Uh, and I won't cut you off again. Go ahead. Okay, that's okay. Yes. Yeah, so my understanding of the history, and, and you feel free to register your, your, your disagreement, is that this, this came in the context of, of, a, of a defensive war by Israel, where first Palestinians attacked, and then every surrounding Arab country joined the attack with the goal of annihilating the Jews of Israel and the state of Israel. And in the context of that defensive war, expelled what they viewed to be a potential fifth column in, in, in the state of Israel. Now, th this, again, that context, I think, is important to include when, when you're talking about how this problem was born, right? So I'm just going to leave it there and give you the chance to, to register your disagreement. Do you not think that, that con the context that it was a defensive war for the existence of the Jewish state, uh, do you think that that's important context to the expulsions or no? I think context, historical context, is certainly important. I think it needs to be accurate, though, and I don't think your description matches the reality in any way. There, again, has been plenty of uh, historical work done on the events of 1947 through 1949, which, again, if people want to understand this issue, should probably engage with in a serious way. And again, suffice it to say that your description does not does not match the reality. Uh, in no way was 19 48 a defensive war for the state of Israel. In fact, at least half of the population, something many people don't know, that was ultimately forced from their homes in 1948, was forced from their homes prior to the creation of the state of Israel in May 1948 and prior to the entrance of other Arab armies into the war. So this was not a defensive war to protect the state of Israel. This was an offensive war to create a state of Israel at the expense of the native population, who, by the way, was the majority of the inhabitants in the land and didn't want to live under the subjugation of other people, which is a perfectly legitimate position. And so when you have these hundreds of thousands of people that are being forced out of their homes, yes, it's going to lead to other people, including the countries which they are headed to, taking a position and doing something about it. But this is not a defensive war by Israel. This was an ethnic cleansing, a an effort to create a state on other people's land, uh, a state that still exists today on other people's land, including many of the people who are in Gaza, who are not originally from Gaza, by the way. They're not from Gaza City. The vast majority of the people who live in the Gaza Strip are originally from towns and villages outside of Gaza and have never been allowed to return to their homes. Again, this is the root of the problem. Look, if you have a space where there are 100 people OK, and they let's say 80 percent of them, 70 percent of them are 
one type of people, Palestinians. They want their self-determination. And a smaller group of people, 30%, says, no, we want to put our state here, and it's going to be our type of state, a Jewish state in this case, okay? And we want to have a demographic majority. Well, what is that going to mean? That's going to mean people who don't want to live there are going to be forced out of their homes. This is the root of the problem. Everything that we see after that goes back to that fundamental issue, which we have failed to address. Yeah. So I don't want to get too bogged down in our historical disagreements, which may not be resolved here, but okay. I mean, they're central though, right? They're obviously very important here. So in 1947, do you think that, is it your view that the, the Jews attacked the Palestinians or the Palestinians attacked the Jews when, the, when it was announced that the UN resolution to split the land had passed? Because my understanding is that the Palestinian, Palestinians attacked the Jews in 1947. So when I, say, when I say defensive war, that's what I'm referring to. No. So again, political violence does n- did not start in 1947. goes back earlier than that. The single biggest inflection point is the war from 47 through 49, in which you have the vast majority of the native inhabitants of Palestine forced from their homes. And this, of course, had major reverberations for every moment that follows beyond that. But in 1947, you have a British mandate in Palestine. Okay. The British, which by the way, you may know are not Palestinian, are running Palestine, where the vast majority of people who live there, again, are not British, have no say over what the British government decides to do with the country and are being fundamentally denied self-determination. And this is something that the British government was perfectly comfortable acknowledging, that they didn't give a damn about Palestinian self-determination. Okay, and you can go back and, and read that in the in the annals of of sort of British imperial history. And they said, well, we are going to help create a state for Jewish people in this space. Okay. now the problem, of course, is that there were people in that space, lots of them who weren't Jewish and didn't want that. Right. And so this was a reality that was imposed on their people without their consent and against their will by an imperial power that sort that sought to help a political movement in the Zionist movement achieve their political goals at the expense of others. Okay, that is the fundamental attack on Palestinians doesn't start in 1947. It starts by denying their self-determination and their existence as a people at the beginning of this entire process. Okay, I can't help but feel that you're slightly dodging my question, though, because I... am not dodging your question at all. I've answered it. Okay, well, I think that when I say it's a defensive war and I ask you if the Palestinians attacked first in 47, which is the beginning of that war, I think we would both acknowledge. Of course, as you say, political violence predates it, but that was the beginning of a pretty important and, and discreet war, I think you would acknowledge. And it was started by a Palestinian attack on the Jews, not vice versa. And that is a fact which matters, right? Again, the attack on Palestinians is the political movement of Zionism that was enabled by the British to create a state, deny their self-determination, and ultimately force them from their homes and deny them freedom in their homeland. So we're, you seem to be talking about something completely different than what I'm, I'm trying to explain to you. I'm not sure why you don't want to uh, address that reality, but that's the way that I see it. So if you were in charge in 1947, if for whatever reason, 
would you have, uh, if you had influence in the UN or so forth, would you have just created one state rather than what was actually done, which was uh, partition the land into an Israel and a Palestine? So if you look, first of all, it, it wasn't partitioned into an Israel and a Palestine. It was partitioned That's into I mean. an Arab state and a Jewish state. Okay. This was the, yeah. And it wasn't exactly partitioned. If you know the, the details of the 1947 partition plan, there was not a clean separation between an Arab state and a Jewish state. These two states were intertwined geographically and the United Nations intended them to be an economic union. It divided the Arab population in Palestine into four different geographic and political entities. And so this partition plan itself denied the self-determination and unity of the Palestinian people, even then. Um, so it was a fundamentally unjust plan that was laying the foundation for conflict. Okay, so back to my question then. Yeah. So a short answer, no, I would not have done what the United Nations did, because I think it was a, a tragic mistake that helped lay the foundation to much of the, the problems we see today. And in fact, one of the one of the parties that recognized that at that time was the United States. And in March of 1948, the United States at the United Nations withdrew their support for the partition plan in 1947 because they said, hey, guys, this is a really bad idea and it's probably going to lead to terrible so conflict would you have if done? we move forward with it. I would have not denied self-determination to the people who live there. And the uh, idea that you can't imagine a scenario where people live together under some sort of democratic rules, I think is pretty ridiculous. There was a country there, a mandate of Palestine, that mandate should have ended and it should have ended in a way that allowed everybody to exercise their right to vote within the country if they lived there uh, without having to push people off their land, without having to deny self-determination to people, without having to draw artificial borders and divisions and to create a political solution that laid the foundations for violence for years to come. This is, uh, again, I feel you're slightly dodging the spirit of my question, only I don't mean that in an accusatory way. Just let me just paint a picture of why I'm asking you this over and over again. The whole reason for partition is when it's found that two peoples just can't live together, right? In the sense that there is there are cycles of violence that seem uncontrollable. It's, it's not an illogical idea to go for a partition as was done uh, between Muslims and Hindus. And do you think that was the reason behind partition that the United Nations thought these two people couldn't live together? I mean, certainly the British found it completely unmanageable to call violence in mandatory Palestine. The British policy had nothing to do with trying to mitigate violence. The British policy, which was established in the Balfour Declaration going back to 1917, was to create a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. That was the British policy. It was not about political violence. And in fact, they understood in the process of what they were doing that they were going to create violence and that they were denying the self-determination of the vast majority of people who lived there. So this was not about mitigating violence in any way. That's not what partition was driven by. Partition was driven by supporting the aims of the Zionist movement, which sought to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. That, that was the motivation for it. And that's what they did, right? Even if it meant doing so in a way that was going going to sow political conflict for the Let next century. Broadly, the reason why nationalist movements have made any kind of sense historically, whether we are talking about the Hindu nationalist movement, the Muslim nationalist movement, the Zionist nationalist movement, the Palestinian nationalist movement, etc., cetera, uh, the black nationalist movement that founded Liberia and Africa, all the logic behind this broadly is that to be a, a minority in someone else's country often come in the long run 
comes with genocide, apartheid, and so forth. And so at some point, good fences make better neighbors. And the process of doing that is inevitably bloody. It was incredibly bloody in India when you had Hindus on the wrong side of the border and Muslims on the wrong side of the border scrambling to get to their new states. It was an absolute tragedy. Still, I think most people look back on it as a better decision than having a a one state with a, a, a Muslim minority under Hindu democratic rule. So I feel there are inevitable trade-offs here. And so so is it like, do you think the whole, this is why I ask you, uh, what would you have done? And and the answers you've given thus far is I definitely wouldn't have done with what the UN did. Right. But that's not satisfying to me because I kind of want to ask what you would have done as an alternative, because the one state solution seems like uh, if we run that counterfactual history, where it's just one state with a Jewish minority and it's a democratic state, that could easily end up in a genocide of the Jews counterfactually. And so these were the alternatives that that the decision makers were facing. I just want to note that I think, yeah, so first of all, I think that's just wrong. And I, I, I want to point out here that what you're saying here echoes some of the propaganda of the apartheid South Africa regime during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, when they said, oh, if we allow one man, one vote, all these black people are going to massacre us and there's going to be a white genocide. And so this this recalls some of the worst uh, sort of- Hold on, uh, I'm going to interrupt you there. I, I'm going to uh, interrupt you briefly because- we, That we heard I think from that era. The, the difference between South, South African apartheid and you know, 1947 is you, you literally have on record Arab leaders saying what they are going to, what they intend to do with the Jews. And it's genocidal language. So it's, it's absolutely not. You think there's never, you think there's been nothing but friendly comments from black South Africans towards the white people who are oppressing them? Not from Nelson Mandela. Certainly not from the leaders that were in, in position to... Uh, I think you ought to read up a little bit more on South Africa and other anti-colonial movements uh, before you make some sort of exceptional statements about the history of Palestine. But Al-Husseini and Mandela were not did not have the same intentions. I didn't talk about Nelson Mandela. I said, I think you need to read up on the history of South Africa because to try to make an exception what matters out is what of the leaders Palestine, intend, not I think, that is ahistorical. There are ang- angry... Uh, go ahead. You asked me about what I would do. Right. So I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have recognized the self-determination of the people who live there. And the vast majority of them were Palestinian Arabs. Uh, And there should have been an independent state there where everybody, regardless of their race or religion or or ethnicity, uh, should have had equal rights before the law. Uh, This would have been in line with the charter of the United Nations, and it would have respected the self-determination of all peoples without denying the individual collective rights of any. This is what I would have done. Uh, Instead, what they sought to do was appease the political goals of a movement, the Zionist movement, which which wanted to create a Jewish state at the expense of the majority of the people who were living there. And when you do that, you are going to create conflict. And this is what they did with complete disregard for the lives of people who are going to be at stake, by the way, on both sides, okay? Um, So I don't think we are doing Palestinians uh, or Israelis a favor by ignoring the root causes of the political violence that we see. It's very easy for us to do sitting behind microphones thousands of miles away. But the reality is that until we address those root causes, until we address those core issues, until there is freedom and safety for Palestinians, there's not going to be safety and security for Israelis either. And we're only going to condemn further generations of Palestinian children and Israeli children to suffering horrific scenes of violence if we don't do that. And I don't think there's any political point scoring that is worth doing that. 
So do you think in your counterfactual where you create this state, there would be less political conflict, less violence, no violence? You think think there would be a, you think there'd still be a Jewish minority? There'd still be a a thriving Jewish? I think political violence, by the way, so I think political violence is not unique to Israel and Palestine. It's not unique to the Middle East, and it's not unique really to anywhere. It's just part of the human condition. And it's something that goes up and down based on the conditions in which it takes place and exists. I think if you address the causes and the grievance behind political violence and why it takes place, you can bring it towards an end. And there's no way to guarantee that there will never be political violence. And I think that is unrealistic. And it doesn't exist anywhere in the world. What we do know is that societies that recognize the rights of all the people that live within a space, that recognize their human rights, their civil and political rights within a space, tend to be less violent. But when you ethnically cleanse people, when you occupy people, when you deny them freedom, those are not the conditions that eliminate political violence. Those are the conditions that breed political violence. So I oppose the exceptionalization of this issue. I oppose the exceptionalization of Palestinians. And I oppose this idea that somehow Israelis and Palestinians cannot live together in peace. I think that they can under the right conditions where there is freedom and justice and equality. It's absolutely possible. It's possible all over the world. And to to say that it isn't because these people are who they are, uh, is I it think racist it's to racist. say that Hindus and Muslims couldn't live in peace w- with equality in India and therefore need to need, need each need a state? No, just because they're Hindus and Muslims. I think if we are rooting the impossibility in their in their identities, if we are saying that there is something fundamentally innate about these people that prevents them from living peacefully with each other. Yes, I think it's racist. This ends up. Yeah, it's not that there's something fundamentally innate. It's just. But that's what. But here's the thing. That's what it boils down to. When I say to you, we can create conditions in which there is freedom and justice and equality for everybody. And under those conditions, we can eliminate or reduce to the furthest expectable point anywhere else in the world, political violence between these communities. And you say to me, oh, you don't think that the Palestinians would butcher the Jews. What would motivate that? What would motivate that is uh, intense human tribalism, which is a universal, but also flares up in, in particular places at particular times. And if you reduce the conditions in which political conflict takes place, you can tame those things as they have been tamed in many places around the world where there has been conflict and conflict has then been reduced or nearly eliminated by putting into place. One way that's one way it's been reduced and eliminated is by giving each people its own state. This is one of the most effective. This, this goes back cases, to my point. This is one of the most effective ways of minimizing conflict has been good fences make good neighbors. And not so, if you put your fence on top of somebody else's house and kick them out in the process, right? So partition doesn't necessarily solve problems. In a lot of cases, it creates a lot of problems. State formation as a process is historically an incredibly bloody thing. And when you try to draw artificial lines between communities that are already intertwined and in the process force people out of their homes, you're not creating conditions of peace and justice. You're creating the conditions of violence. This is what lies at the foundation of everything that we're seeing today and everything that we've seen since that moment. Yeah. Okay. So I think we may have disagreements here, but I don't want to spend the whole, whole podcast on this. I think my audience has heard enough of both of us on this that they can fair enough sort of, if you feel that. So let's, I I do want to move on to 
the really like the past two weeks. And I, I hope you feel you've given enough historical context that you can really sort of focus on, on what's going on the past, past two weeks. One of the big, the crux of the issue for me is what is Hamas and what does Hamas want? Is Hamas simply a, uh, a group of people that have political grievances and are trying to use violence to bring about a good state of affairs and uh, for their people? Or are they also deep believers in extremist uh, Islam and literal interpretations of certain passages of the Quran and literal interpretations of jihad and similar to ISIS in, the, in, in wanting, yearning for a kind of caliphate? How do you view Hamas in terms of, do you, do you take their charter seriously and all of the religious religious motives that they constantly announce that they have? Or do you view them as sort of more secular freedom fighter style group? So I think you would concede that you acknowledge that political violence by Palestinians in opposition to Israel, including at times uh, targeting civilians, predates the existence of Hamas. Fair enough. Absolutely, okay. yeah. And so the conditions around that pre-exist Hamas, they pre-exist the rise of political Islam in the region, in fact. So the conditions that drive that have always existed. Now, there is a question of what animates different parties. And different parties have different platforms. They have different ideologies behind them. And there is a wide range of them in Palestinian politics and beyond Palestinian politics throughout the region as well. There are some of them that are driven by Islamist ideology, some of them that are not, some of them that are driven by communist ideologies, some of them that are not, some of them are nationalist and so on and so forth. I think that the ideologies tend to be a vehicle for communicating to people and try to bring people together around particular organizations. But the motivations for resistance to Israel which again predate these particular organizations, lie in the opposition of Palestinians to what Israel is doing to them. And at different times, different groups have been able to rally people in the direction uh, of resistance to Israel using different platforms, including fundamentalist Islamist ideology, as does Hamas, as does Islamic Jihad. I think there are ways to make those ideologies less popular. I don't think you can kill ideas. I think you can make them less popular. And one of the ways that you do that is by reducing and eliminating the core political grievances that drive Palestinian resistance to Israeli oppression. So what would your solution be to, re to reduce the political grievances concretely? So I think you start by looking at the human rights situation and asking yourself which human rights are denied and to whom. And then you address those things comprehensively. Uh, so for Palestinians, this means an end to occupation, an end to siege, an end to discriminatory policies, which treat Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza as people without rights, and which treat Palestinians inside of Israel, including people like myself and, and much of my family members, as second-class citizens. You address those things. You treat people equally. You have justice and equality under the law written into a constitution. And then you can move towards a society where there is fairness. And I think that creates the conditions in which there is far less political violence. Look, I'm not naive. I don't think political violence disappears with the flip of a switch. I don't think the history and the realities that Palestinians have experienced will, will be erased from Israeli or Palestinian memories in the immediate future. I don't think it works like that. But I also believe there is a point to which people can reach beyond these things. 
that when we respect each other as human beings, when we address these fundamental inequalities, we can get to a place where there is much less of that. Uh, but we have to have the courage to try it. We have to have the courage to do it. And we certainly won't get there by simplifying things into good guys and bad guys. So from the Israeli perspective, they would say, we, we tried this theory by withdrawing from Gaza in 2005, and rather than reduce violence against us, and if, if anything, it increased and it allowed for, for things like... From which Israeli perspective? You're talking about the Israeli government's perspective. Or, or no, some of the people as well. Some of the sure. from, from it's, an, a, it's an, an Israeli it's, perspective. Correct. It's an Israeli perspective, but it's one that has a logic to it, which is if withdrawal led to a situation that allowed, you know, October 7th, Hamas fighters to pour over the border and slaughter over a thousand civilians, then how can I in good conscience feel that withdrawal is leading towards the kind of, I don't want to call it a utopia, but a, a better situation that you're envisioning? Sure. I think it's, first of all, I'm, I'm not saying, uh, I, my reference is not to a withdrawal. I think today there is effectively one state between the river and the sea. That state is Israel. Uh, and within that state, there's fundamental inequality and mistreatment of the Palestinians who live there, including in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem and inside Israel and in Gaza as well. So my reference was not to, uh, you know, Israel pulling out its, its troops from Gaza uh, when it did. But I'm glad, actually, that you raised that point. I think it's, it's an important question to address. And I think it is, and I know that you, you said this is an Israeli perspective and not necessarily your own. And even if it is your own, I think it's a fundamentally disingenuous one, especially when you understand the policy behind the Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip when they pulled out their troops when they did uh, in the mid-2000s. If you look at the explanation for the withdrawal, and this is something that was documented in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz uh, back in, uh, in 2004-2005, I believe, and I would encourage people who are listening to this to go back and read the explanation from Ariel Sharon's advisor, Dove White Wiseglass, who explained the logic behind the withdrawal at the time. He did not say we are withdrawing because we want to move towards peace with the Palestinians. Actually, what he said was the exact opposite of that. He said, we are withdrawing from Gaza to stop any movement towards peace. We want to be able to point to Gaza, a place which we are going to ensure is a failure, as a reason not to have to withdraw from the West Bank. And please go read it. I hope everyone who's listening to this reads it. And this has been the Israeli policy since then. Keep Gaza and the West Bank divided, keep Gaza operating, but completely dysfunctionally, and point to Gaza as a reason why they should never leave the West Bank, all the while building more and more settlements in the West Bank to ensure that they entrench their presence there and further cement a one-state reality between the river and the sea. The situation we see today is a product of Israeli policy, not because Israeli policy was mistaken, but because Israeli policy sought out this outcome and implemented it quite effectively. But no doubt before the withdrawal from Gaza, there were all kinds of human rights organizations calling for a withdrawal from Gaza, right? For non-cynical reasons. There were calls to end the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, not simply a withdrawal of Israeli troops, but to end the occupation and to uh, bring freedom and self-determination to Palestinians, not to move from ruling Gaza from the outside to ruling Gaza uh, from the inside to ruling it from the outside. So this is something fundamentally different than what the human rights community and also international law calls for in relation to Israel's treatment of, of Gaza and, and the remainder of the occupied territory. 
Right. So my view is that if you're talking about the blockade now, my view is that if the blockade were ended, high tech weapons would just flow into Hamas's hands. And no sooner did that happen, would they use it to just obliterate Israel to the best of their ability? Do you not see it that way? Do you think the blockade would end and and Hamas would become more peaceful? In what world does the blockade end? The rest of the the, the issues in Gaza don't get uh, addressed. How how do w- what scenario are you uh, envisioning here? The the root causes in Gaza are not just about a blockade, as I've spent plenty of time uh, explaining to you. The drivers of political violence pre-exist the blockade, and they pre-exist Hamas. Um, and so I know you want to keep bringing this back to Hamas because it might be convenient for you in this conversation to do so. But you have already stipulated uh, that these things existed prior to the existence of Hamas. And frankly, they will exist after the existence of Hamas if they are not addressed and Hamas disappears from the scene. And so even if the Israelis succeed in what I think, by the way, is is an impossible objective in trying to eliminate this this organization, the root causes remaining there are only going to mean that different forms of of resistance are uh, are going to emerge. And so all we're doing is hitting rewind on this horror film. And I think we owe it to everybody on the ground over there to reject these kinds of options. Okay. So, I mean, from my perspective, the, the root, I don't know if it's the, the root cause, but certainly one, one root cause of Hamas's grievance is the fact of a Jewish state at all of any size. Right. So I can follow you down the logic that, yeah, the blockade isn't, is not going to Lifting the blockade wouldn't solve Hamas's anger. Even ending Hamas would not solve the grievances of Palestinians. But is the end is your end game here some kind of two state solution, two states for two peoples, or is your end game a one state with a, with a right of return for Palestinian refugees? Let me ask you a question, Coleman. I don't. We haven't met before today. It's nice to meet you virtually. I don't know where you live. I'm assuming you live somewhere in the United States. Yes, New York City. Okay. Do you want to live in a nation that defines itself as a white Christian nation? A nation that defines itself as a white Christian nation. In the abstract, no. Okay. In Is that abstract, because you're no, Hamas? No. Or because you no, see no, the destruction would, of white Christians? No, I would just assume that I am not, as, as a black man, that I wouldn't be welcome there, or that I would assume if it defines itself that way, that I would, that I might be treated, treated as a as subjugated, a as a second class citizen. Exactly. Yeah, good. Yeah. So now you understand why Palestinians don't want to live under the control of a state that defines itself uh, in an identity that is not their identity. It's not about Hamas, as, as you've made clear. The reason you oppose this is not because... And why Jews don't, Jews don't want to live in... Uh, a democratic state that would have a permanent Arab majority. See, but I didn't, same, I didn't, I'm not talking, I'm not talking people. about demographics. I'm talking about equality before the law, right? See, what you're saying is you cannot imagine a scenario where Palestinians can exist alongside Jews with equality before the law in some kind of democratic society. I think that's possible. You seem to have sympathy for the idea that it's not. Uh, and I, I think it's I less likely. I, I don't see, look, I don't think it's very likely that a country, a nation in Palestine with a, with an Arab majority, which would be able to choose its own fate, choose its own constitution as a democracy, would be like America in the sense of America post, let's say, 1965 in terms of 
guaranteeing universal human rights for all of its citizens, regardless of race, color, or creed. And why is that? Why why do you think that this place is so different than America? Well, America is a very, why would it be similar to America? Because there are people here and there are people there and people are capable of overcoming. China is not similar to America. They have a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. Are you going to say I'm being racist towards the Chinese? So Here's the I, fundamental I feel you're being naive. You're, you're being naive or you're assuming somehow. I'm not being naive at all. In fact, everyone, I think I'm everywhere being, is like I'm, America. I'm, America is very, it's an exception first, and, to and the first rule, of all, if let's, anything. Let's be honest about America. We're not without our problems here either. We're not exactly the ideal nation. As important as I think there are developments here in the United States, we have plenty of our own, own problems as well. But here's the basic math, okay? There are probably somewhere close to four or 5,000 ethno-religious groups throughout the world and about 194 perhaps 200 by now, nation states that are recognized by the United Nations. And political conflict, while it exists, is more the exception than the norm throughout this space. It's actually far more common that you have people living together despite their differences and in peace than you have people living in conflict because of their differences. That is the reality of the world that we live in today. The question is, what are the conditions in which they live? Are the conditions in which they live those of equality and justice before the law and and freedom? Or are they conditions of oppression? I think here in the United States, if you oppress people, if you deny them their rights, you're going to have political conflict, whether they're Palestinian or Israeli or, or, or white or black or anything else. Not because of who they are or where they came from, but because this is what happens when you do that to people. To do that to human beings is to create conflict. And so I oppose the exceptionalization of this place. It just doesn't match the reality of the world that we live in. But there is an exceptional level of violence and an exceptional type of violence. Would you not acknowledge that? Compared to what? The bloodiest period in the history of the world was Europe in the 20th century. How is this some sort of exceptional level of violence? It's certainly exceptional today. Compared to what? Look, I don't... How many countries have been attacked by almost all of their neighbors in the past 75 years as many times as Israel has? How many countries are built upon the ruins of another people and have imposed their will against hundreds of thousands of people that they've dispersed into those neighboring countries? Actually, unfortunately, many, but just far further back in history than Israel was founded. America, so the, Liberia, the, the problem is that, Australia, the problem is that Israel happens to be established at a time where our morality developed to the point where it's inconvenient for it. I would say yes, absolutely. Black Americans did the exact same thing Jews did in Israel, in Liberia, in West Africa, went back to our homeland, but no one objected to it because it was considered normal in the, in the mid-19th century by those mores. So you want to justify Israel's treatment of the Palestinians today with 18th century moral values? No, not treatment of the Palestinians, but the project of going to an ancestral homeland and settling it in what we would today call settler colonialism throughout most of human history until relatively recently wasn't seen as a as a morally as a morally questionable thing and and black people did How that work out Liberia. for the victims of settler colonialism? For the victims of settler colonialism, not well at all. You could see why they wouldn't be happy with with settler colonialism. Of course, of course. Like I said, if and I even that, resist that doesn't, it. yeah, of course I can see why they would resist it. And, but, and oppose ideas of morality thrust upon them by the people carrying out settler colonialism. It depends. I mean, it depends what those ideas of morality were. If, the, if those ideas of morality were offering that somehow a state, offering, they are uh, fundamentally states, capable of living in peace with them. No, if, if, if the idea of morality were offering two states 
as, as a compromise pragmatic solution the way that Pakistan and India did, I wouldn't necessarily oppose it. Dude, if, if I came to your house and took over three quarters of it and said, you can live in a garage, here's our partition. I would imagine you would be pretty unhappy about that. I probably right? would be very ha- you unhappy probably would about be. it. And this is why Palestinians are unhappy about it, because you can't present the denial of freedom and self-determination of a people in their homeland as some kind of compromise. It's not. It's an offense. It's an attack on their very existence. So I, I don't know why, you know, I don't know why you want to try to circle around this fact and find some justification for it or have to go back to the the, the ethnic cleansing of, of indigenous peoples in this country to find parallels for what we what we see happening now to justify it. But it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. And I, I would imagine it probably doesn't make sense to most objective listeners to your program now either. Look, I think my view on this is that if I were a Palestinian living in historic Palestine at any time between 1880 and 1948, I would hate the Jews. But if I were a Jew leaving- Why would you hate the Jews? Because they're coming into my homeland. They're a different people, et cetera. I, hold on, let me finish my point. Hold on. But if I were a Jew leaving Eastern Europe fleeing pogroms and you told me I, there's a small Jewish community in the Ottoman Empire in historic Palestine, maybe I'll have better a better chance there. And I hear there's a movement that's that has a long run goal of establishing a Jewish state where we'll be safe. I would do that, too. And the fact that it has resulted in such a, a terrible scenario in, in other words, mere empathy for one side or the other doesn't necessarily decide what is the best approach pragmatically to solving the issue. So when you ask me this question, how would you feel? I'm right there with you. I would feel exactly what the Palestinians feel. But if I, if I were a Jew coming from the other side of it, I would feel what they feel. And so the question is not necessarily what each side would feel, but what is the pr- pragmatic solution that would allow a long run possibility of, of stable nonviolent societies? And you seem to feel that the, like, uh, don't let me put words in your mouth, but you seem to feel a one state solution where everyone has equal rights, America style post 1965 is a likely best outcome, but I I see I see it as much more likely. Again, every solution has downsides, but much more viable to have two separate states run by that are majority their each their ethnicity, Pakistan and India style, and that won't be without its problems either. But it seems to me much more realistic than the alternative that I think you're proposing. Oh, it's not something uh, that you should think I'm proposing. I've, I've proposed it. I've written about it extensively. People can check out the piece that I wrote in Foreign Affairs about this in 2019, uh, where I go into detail about the reasons why and the ways in which we can start moving in that direction. And yes, I think we have a one-state reality, and we've had a one-state reality since 1967, and that's been an incredibly violent reality. The problem is not that it is one state. The problem is within that state, there is oppression, there is discrimination, and there's a lack of freedom and justice. That's the problem. Problem isn't that people are living together, but in what conditions in which they are living together. Israelis and Palestinians, Muslims and Jews can live together in peace, just as Christians of different denominations can live together in Europe, and people of different ethnic backgrounds can live together all over the world if we create the conditions in which there is peace and justice and equality. So, uh, and and I w- would say about your 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 earlier point 
Palestinians lived with a Jewish community in Palestine for hundreds of years. One of the reasons the Zionist movement came to the Middle East and away from Europe is because it was safer for Jews than it was in Europe, which of course, as you note, had a horrific and bloody history of anti-Semitism. Uh, the issue for Palestinians is not with Jews, is not with the Jewish religion in any way. If the people who came to Palestine to create a state uh, against the will of Palestinians and forced us out of our home were Brazilian, we'd have a problem with Brazilians. If they were Chinese, we'd have a problem with Chinese. If they were Indian, we'd have a problem with the Indians. The problem is not with the identity of the people who did what they're doing, but what it is that they did and what those consequences were for us, which is, again, the denial of freedom uh, and self-determination in our homeland. That's what this fundamentally boils down to. And we can go back and forth and around it a million times. Um, but until those things are addressed, um, in whatever political construct one tries to address them, um, there's, there's no escaping political violence. Do you don't think any of it has to do with the fact that there are so many passages in the Quran talking about how terrible the Jews are? No, I don't. And I think that there are passages in different types of texts of all different kinds of religions, which could be interpreted and promulgated by people who want to use them to espouse political violence. But we can take that kind of power and authority away from people uh, who attempt to do that across the board and across different types of religions by addressing the core grievances. Um, there are people who use uh, Jewish scripture and text to justify the killing of Palestinian children. I don't think that re represents the Jewish religion, even if the people who try to uh, make those claims try to speak from a position of religious authority. And they, they will have some followers. Um, but the extent to which they have followers depends on what kind of conditions these arguments are being made in. And that's why we have to address those conditions. Look, if people are living in conditions of oppression and injustice, they're going to look for whatever they can find to mobilize resistance against that, including things which are wrong, with things which I disagree with. Um, but we're not, we're not addressing this issue uh, by addressing its symptoms. We need to address the causes of it. We need to address the foundation of it. Let's just pivot to kind of the, the current conflict as it's manifesting. What do you think, uh, I mean, given the fact that Israel is very likely to start a, a ground invasion, what do you think the, the short-term endgame should be here? I mean, do you, do you just think Israel just shouldn't invade or do you think they should invade with a plan, a specific plan to get, get rid of Hamas? I don't think there is a military solution to this issue. I also don't think that Israel's stated military objectives are achievable. I certainly don't think they're achievable at the likely cost at which they would come to civilian life and infrastructure in Gaza. And I don't think that they're justifiable in any way uh, if the costs mean the mass killing of civilians, which has already taken place, and the depopulation of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in the Gaza Strip. I think uh, what is most needed at this point is an immediate ceasefire and uh, an attempt to address this crisis in an urgent and comprehensive way. Israel has been killing leaders of Hamas for longer than most, if not all, of the people who were involved in the October 7th attacks were alive. They've been bombarding Gaza for years on end. 
what this has resulted in is the single largest security failure and attack from Gaza that Israel has ever experienced. If there was a military solution to this, the Israelis would have already found it. At the same time, despite putting the people in Gaza in a unprecedented system of oppression and punishment for years on end, the people there are no less opposed to what Israel is doing to them. They have not become convinced that somehow resistance and opposition to Israel is not legitimate. If anything, they cling more to those ideas because every time Israel attacks, it creates the kind of destruction and injustice that we are seeing. So the Israelis can go back to this option over and over again. But this, at the end of the day, is what we know is the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So one solution that's been proposed is that Israel destroy Hamas leaders in in Gaza and hand the territory over to Egypt for management, who then hands the territory over to the Palestinian Authority. Does that seem at all attractive to you as a near-term option, or do you view that as half measures that that are not getting to the crux of the issue? Again, I don't think that the the stated military objectives are achievable. I think that the Israelis can attempt to use overwhelming force to occupy the Gaza Strip. I think in the process, they will probably take incredible military losses, uh, and they will also do even greater damage to civilian life and infrastructure. In the process, they will further lose any international credibility or patience and cover that they had from Western nations. And they will probably start to be in a position where Israeli society questions what the actual achievable objectives of this operation are. If everything goes swimmingly for the Israelis, they're going to be in a situation where they occupy the Gaza Strip or they've committed another act of ethnic cleansing or some level of genocide against the people in Gaza. And then what happens to the Gaza Strip? Who controls it? I don't think that you are going to Uh, be able to successfully engineer some kind of Palestinian leadership uh, if it's done by the very people who have just finished decimating Palestinians in uh, Gaza. This is not a Well, that would would be the logic of handing it to to Egyptians to hand to Palestinian authorities so that Israel does not have to rule it. You you realize that the Palestinian Authority is uh, seen as an entity that collaborates with the uh, Israelis and is fundamentally illegitimate, that most Palestinians want to see Mahmoud Abbas resign, that most Palestinians see the Palestinian Authority as a burden on Palestinian society. The idea that you're going to engineer some kind of legitimate or representative Palestinian leadership in Gaza uh, by handing it to the Palestinian Authority is emblematic of a reading of Palestinian politics that's just utterly ignorant. So again, though, none of the options here seem good to me. It's not that I suggested that because I think it's great or the Palestinian people will love it. It's that the option you're suggesting, which is a a ceasefire that leaves Hamas in power, presumably, this, what signal does this send to Hamas? What deterrent signal does this send to Hamas for them not to organize and do this again? Look, I actually agree that that the Israelis don't have good choices here. And I think that their leadership has put them in an incredibly terrible position. And I think that this is the product of uh, a series of horrific policies that they've kept in place for years. They thought that they could trap 2 million people in this open air torture chamber for a decade and a half, and that somehow this would be a sustainable project. 
that was never realistic. And I agree with you. The Israelis don't don't have good options now. But that's not a justification for mass killing. That's not a justification for ethnic cleansing. That's not a justification for wiping out hundreds of families from the face of this earth by dropping bombs on their homes or wiping out entire cities. I think that the Israeli leadership needs to be held accountable by its own people and by the international community for this situation. Okay, so just to be clear one last time, your proposal would be one state across all of what Gaza, Israel proper, the West Bank, where everyone has equal rights, voting rights, et cetera, right? As I said, I've written about this extensively. I would encourage people to read the things I wrote to get a fuller understanding of my position. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a fair enough characterization of what I'd like to ultimately see. Yes. So I think, I mean, if if I can boil our disagreement down to one thing, it, I think that in that scenario, it's very likely that the, the Jews of Israel would have to pack up and leave or be killed. Why? Because I think it would lead to a, an, a genocide of the Jews by, by Hamas, by Hamas. And even if the majority of Palestinians didn't support it, I think the, the extremists- When we talk about a state where there is equality before the law, there's not going to be organizations which have the use of arms outside the law. This is part of it. This is part of getting to that place. So this doesn't, again, this doesn't happen by flipping a switch. Um, there's going to be a significant and long process to get from where we are today to where we need to be. But when I talk about rule of law, that doesn't just mean rule of law for one group. It means rule of law for everybody. It means that all crimes will be held accountable. Um, And so you're not going to have these kinds of groups. You're not going to have these kinds of possibilities in a place like that. One of the reasons why you have groups like this that exist today is because you have an absence of a state that has legitimate uh, governance in these spaces. You have an occupation. You don't have legitimate representation for the people there. They don't have a voice in government. There's no social contract between the people on the ground and the people who rule them, right? It's, It's through the creation of those processes that these kinds of threats get dismantled. And so frankly, I think to boil this down to something so simplistic, to fail to understand that there is a process to get us from point A to point B, is it's hard to escape a reading of that that doesn't see it as intentionally obtuse. So if I go down this road with you, imagining the end zone as a a really ideal uh, state where everyone's rights are respected, minority rights are respected, etc. Historically, it seems like the first step or one of the first steps on the path of that goal is to have a Martin Luther King or a Nelson Mandela figure that really has the credibility of his people and is also able to tell the other group of people, we do not wish to in any way harm you. We want to live in inequality and harmony and really can credibly claim nonviolence as a guiding ethos. Now, would you agree that that's like a logical step on the path to the the end goal that you're looking for? I don't know that it's necessarily logical or illogical. I don't think that's that that logic has something to do with it. I think it's ahistorical to suggest that you can only get there through the presence of, of nonviolent figures. I think that there is a romanticization of certain figures, particularly in, in settler colonial societies who want to boost the, you know, the reputations of figures like that throughout history. But I also don't think that's the only way in which it takes place. And I would say, though, that 
I have long been a proponent of nonviolent resistance to uh, Israel's violations of international law and human rights. And uh, I would encourage people to go uh, down that path. And I would ask you where Nelson Mandela was for some 40 years of his life before he became president of South Africa. He was in prison. Yeah, he was, he in, was prison. in prison. Absolutely. And there are plenty of Palestinian figures of all different stripes and backgrounds who have been brutally repressed by the Israeli occupation and who have been murdered by the Israeli occupation who have never taken up arms against Israel. And there are movements, nonviolent movements, to demand accountability for Israel's violations of human rights and international law against Palestinians, which are brutally suppressed, including in the United States and in Europe, where you have laws passed to try to target anyone who advocates for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions, which are fundamentally nonviolent expressions of uh, dissent and, and resistance. And so on the one hand, we say, hey, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? Why can't they be nonviolent, those barbaric Palestinians? Where's their nonviolent resistors? Meanwhile, you have nonviolent resistors who are languishing in Israeli prisons or shot in the streets. And then you have nonviolent movements that are repressed across all of these Western countries that are preaching morality to Palestinians and asking them to stand with their bare chests before Israeli rifles. I mean, this is this is this is morally corrupt. And yeah, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But to what extent is it the fact that a a truly nonviolent Palestinian leader that could do what Sadat did uh, with Egypt and go before Knesset and really persuade credibly Israeli people that this is I mean, peace uh, obviously, Sadat was killed. To what extent is it that that such a Palestinian leader would be taking his life into his own hands among the extremist elements among Palestinians? Again, this historical characterization is so bizarre that you present. Before Sadat went to Jerusalem, he led a war against Israel that was uh, one of the most devastating wars that the Israelis have ever suffered. In fact, it happened on the 6th of October, 50 years prior to the events that we saw on October That's not 7th. what got him assassinated. What got him assassinated was much more making peace with the Israelis after the war. This is not about your mentioning of him getting assassinated. This is your ridiculous characterization of Anwar Sadat as some kind of nonviolent figure. It doesn't work like that. Yes, there was a place for Egyptian diplomacy, and Egyptian diplomacy followed Egyptian belligerency. So what I, what, what, all I'm saying to you is... Okay, so no, I, sorry, hold on. This is to my point. I'm saying, my, I began this by saying, isn't one step in the future towards the ideal you're imagining a pivot towards having an MLK or Gandhi-like figure, whether or, or, or Mandela-like figure, so, someone with violence in their past, but who can credibly say, we have abandoned the way of violence, we really want to make peace and, and mean it without getting killed by other Palestinians. I mean, this is, I, it doesn't have to be a person that's never been violent. That, that's, I don't think that's my point. The primary threat to nonviolent resistance against Israel is the Israeli military. You will find nonviolent resistors in Israeli prison. You will find them in Israeli morgues. And their bodies have still not been handed back to their families because this is one of the policies of the Israeli government. So, you know, this logic of, hey, why don't these people who are oppressed come address us in a more nonviolent way while, by the way, uh, we brutally repress all these people who are nonviolent and any effort globally to try to address this nonviolently is, again, morally corrupt. So you don't think that there should be a Palestinian leader that can credibly 
preach a nonviolent path forward. I'm telling you that there have been many Palestinians that have used not just nonviolence, but diplomacy and all kinds of other methods to communicate with the Israelis. And they have been received in the same way that Palestinians who used armed resistance against Israelis have been received. There is a brutal suppression of dissent of any form by the Israeli military. This is what military occupation is. It's the fundamental denial of rights. Uh, And it has been going on in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem for over 50 years. And so, I mean, it's, I think it's absurd that given all of this, you're, you're asking why Palestinians uh, don't find yet another uh, nonviolent approach to, to this situation when they already have, and they've been brutally repressed. I don't think it's a nonviolent. You want another one? Is that what you're saying? You want more? You want more nonviolence from Palestinians? I mean, how do you how do you deal with the fact that these nonviolent approaches have been repressed? Do you support Look, efforts? I don't to think call that you can. I don't. Uh, ultimately, it has to be a leader that is viewed as credible by the majority of the people who is nonviolent. It can't just be a, a strain. And it's not nonviolent when you have. There's no single you, issue in Palestinian society that has more support, according to public opinion polls than the effort to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel for its international law violations and and human rights abuses. Is that something that you would support? A nonviolent approach to holding Israel to account for those violations of international law and human rights? Yeah, of course. I support a a nonviolent approach to to solving the conflict. But my point is that Palestinian leaders, hold on, hold on, hold on. Palestinian, it's not nonviolent when you have the PLO setting up a martyrs fund rewarding anyone's family who goes and blows up a bus. Right. I'm not telling you about the PLO. I don't know why you uh, bring this up. I'm asking you about efforts to nonviolently resist through boycotts, divestment, and this sanctions. This is the tack that the leadership has has taken, and and isn't my point is isn't there a, the near term goal? If the if the end zone is we both agree would be some kind of great America like or whatever whatever state doesn't I just I I don't see how this is not the only way you get there. I don't think it's the only way that you get there. The wisest way to get there. I think it's the situation we find ourselves in because nonviolent approaches for maybe the 15th time now in the last two minutes have been brutally repressed. I asked you if you support nonviolent approaches like boycotting, divesting, and sanctioning from Israel. You said that you support those approaches, which is wonderful. And I would hope you also oppose the efforts to outlaw such approaches and attack and smear and silence those who call for the same things. Because if you're genuinely interested... I don't think any of that should be outlawed. Okay, good. So we're making progress here because when you ask me where are these Palestinian nonviolent voices, where are these nonviolent movements and leaders, and I tell you, well, actually they exist, but they've been suppressed and silenced, right? It's important for you to say, I think that's wrong and those things should be supported if there's going to be a viable alternative to the conditions which create political violence. More than anything, they have to be supported by Palestinians. Again, the one issue that is more supported by Palestinians than any other, and by the way, when you look at public opinion polling of Palestinians, there's a sizable majority, I'm sorry, there's a sizable plurality, to be fair, uh, of Palestinians who support armed resistance against Israel. But the single largest thing that brings Palestinians across the political spectrum together is support for the idea of boycotting, divesting, and sanctioning Israel to hold them to account for violations of international law and human rights. It is by far the most legitimate and credible method of pushing back against Israeli violations in Palestinian society. So it has credibility. It does exist. 
it is nonviolent, and it is being suppressed. And so if we are interested in actually nurturing that and seeing it grow, it's important to call out the repression of that and to support those types of movements. And I'm glad to hear now that this is something that you do. Well, I, I certainly support not nonviolent approaches, but would you acknowledge also that Hamas brutally suppressing any Palestinian dissent within Gaza is a variable here too. I don't support the suppression of dissent by anybody, including Hamas, including the Palestinian Authority and Israel, including the United States. I do think that's wrong. I don't think it contributes to free and open societies. But it, And that is also happening in the broader context of this entire thing. Uh, and, and the root of that, as we've, we've talked about now for a long time, continues to be the denial of freedom and self-determination for Palestinians in their homeland. I think we should leave it there for now. I think uh, I, I want to thank you for your time, Yusuf. And before I let you go, can you please direct people to where they might find more of your writing, uh, your social media handles and so forth, if they want to get some more of you? Yeah. And let me say, I appreciate you having me on uh, and having this uh, conversation. I hope that uh, the people listening learned something uh, today. You can follow me on Twitter. It's where I'm uh, most active. My handle is at Yusuf Munayer, which is my first and last name. No spaces. Okay. Thanks, Yusuf. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.